This device isn't a spaceship. It's a time machine. Goes backwards, forwards. It takes us to a place where we ache to go again. It's not called the um, wheel. So, New Hampshire, what's happening? It's called the carousel. I mean, my, I think that basically Nikki Haley is staying in the race, hoping, hoping that somebody, either Bobby Kennedy's Donald Trump, or, you know, he gets put in jail, and there could be a revolt, I guess, the Republican... I mean, the Republican Party can basically do whatever it wants. Because people don't seem to understand that about how the nomination process works. It's not like a, it's not a legal thing like, in theory, elections are. You can, the party can just do whatever the hell they want. So, like, I guess like that's probably why she's sticking around. They're hoping that she'll be the last one standing if something happens out of nowhere. She spends something like thirty million in New Hampshire. <laughs> That's fucking wild. You know, it's kind of an underrated thing that I, people talked about it in the past, especially in elections that, I don't know, people didn't care. People got crazier about elections after 2016. But like before that, there was a lot of talk about how just how much money is spent on a campaign. Like, take, for instance, something that nobody cares about, like Carrie versus Bush, right? You know, and tremendous you know, millions and millions of dollars are spent. It's its own little ecosystem. CNN's getting all this money, and it's kind of encouraging the spending for its own sake. I guess there's still that, but I don't know. I think they're I think they were really they're really hoping that she'll either edge him out in New Hampshire or close enough that they can cobble together a narrative like, well, you see, he's not really that popular because you see, like today, there's been all kinds of news about how. He's going to lose to Biden in Pennsylvania and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, but wait, what's your point about the spending? That Like, it, it's possible that part of the reason why you would spend such an insane amount of money in New Hampshire, like, it's possible the people spending that money don't even believe that it's doing anything useful. That it's just yeah. part, like, you're get, you, you know how the guy, like, you, if you work for the government, you get a budget and... For some departments, if you don't use your entire budget, the next year you get less money. So they just go on a spending spree. This is something that allegedly happened, right? Yeah. And, and this is, I've heard this rumor. Like, it's possible that they know, like, a yard sign doesn't do anything. But this is, A, this is like tradition. This is how campaigns operate. And B, people are giving you a lot of money. You're spending it on your political operatives to go door to door or whatever. Just that relationship by itself is worth something, even if it means nothing when it comes to the polls, like when Nikki Haley and Donald Trump have their little primary. Yeah, it's like the it's like the campaign industrial complex, like everybody's getting paid. It's like somebody it is sort of like intangibly beneficial in some way to just like keep the pipeline going and like build this sort of uh operation around this fake conservative candidate that's like not even real right yeah i mean what it, you're saying 
Yeah, and it's certainly not limited to Republicans. Like, there yeah, are and it Democrats. gets you on the ground. I mean, have you heard about what the Dems are doing in like Virginia and I think North Carolina? They're they're investing money in the extreme right wing candidates. Mm-hmm. Have you heard about this? Yeah, but I mean, you know, they did that with Trump in twenty sixteen and backfired horribly. Oh, I, yeah. did they do that? Did they give money to Trump? I well, I, no, I don't think that they literally gave money, but they supported. Like it, it was on a record that Hillary Clinton's campaign wanted Trump to be the nominee. Yeah, oh right, okay. But like, see, so yeah, there's there's an aspect of this that works. Like in our in Virginia, uh, we have we had some colorful characters who ran for Senate and governor, or whatever. But I don't think that that strategy really works long term. Like if you if you fund people who are on the extreme other end of the political spectrum really you're getting their ideas out there and that's yeah, you're just that's opening the overton window right you're just kind of like allowing them a platform right it's like kind of short-sighted well yeah but this is the thing about politics is that in po- american politics everything has to be short-sighted by by definition you need to think about the next four years the next two years if you're in the house whatever you don't care about what comes down the road and that's one of the legitimate argument there's a lot of larp about democracy and monarchy and stuff like one of the legit arguments against democracy is everything is short term it's like market incentives for everything right yeah and you have to be campaigning as soon as you get in office and you're not paying attention to what you're doing at all that's kind of why i like desantis honestly i i don't know what your thoughts i saw you tweeting at uh cernovich earlier about <laughs> about desantis but and uh you also came down on me and i think rightfully so <laughs> about uh saying that i wouldn't care if if uh nikki haley was trump's vp pick which i actually still kind of agree- think that that's true but you really think they would kill him if you really think that would happen uh, everything's for entertainment purposes. Secret Service, do not con- do not contact me. But like, okay. F- first of all, with with the Haley thing, there's two problems. The first is like, I, I always go like I, I like going back in historical terms. Like, think about McKinley picking Teddy Roosevelt as his as his running mate in the was it 1900 election? That was 1900. Like, wow. Yeah, it, it was like I think it was his re-election, or maybe it was 1904. Anyway. It's not important. It was the turn of the century. He picks this guy. There were a lot of people in the party who didn't like him. Allegedly, and I can't remember, I, I think somebody like Hannah said, there was an insane person one heartbeat away from the presidency. He was really mad about this pick, and people were like, yeah, chill out. The vice president doesn't really do anything. Well, some nut job shot McKinley, and all of a sudden, now that crazy person is president. So, like, that is always a consideration. But so that's how Teddy got in. Teddy got in as a VP when yeah. McKinley got killed. I didn't even know that. I don't think. Yeah, I ever knew that. and I mean, like he, you know, he, he was a good president, but he he didn't have to step down and not run again. He he made that promise himself and kind of regretted it because his successors didn't really live up to what he thought they should do. But anyway, the my point is, McKinley probably wouldn't have chosen him if he had known he was going to die. But later, yeah. there's like later versions, like you know Roosevelt picking Truman as his running mate. Truman was kind of a nobody. That's yeah. a really important, a really important job. You have to consider those things. Also, look at what happened with Mike Pence. Oh, well, we'll pick this person who's the party loyalist so they'll leave me alone. Well, they didn't leave him alone, and Pence ultimately turned on. You, you can make the argument that he could be president today if Mike Pence 
had, you know, done what he even now they admit he legally could have done. Right. Yeah, I mean, that's true. But that's that's I feel like a reason to. OK, so then there the reason is either to go with somebody like Vivek, who is like truly on your team or at least appears to be truly on your team. Um, or like the reason I, I'm not, I don't hate the, you know what the Haley pick seems to resemble to me would be like when Musk hired Linda Yaccarino, like (laughs) there's something to be said about hiring the straight up pure enemy that you know is your enemy. Right. It's like because then that gives you access in a way to like a little bit of their it gives you a door into the actual regime. Like Malay, for example, just flew to Davos and spoke at Davos. And then there was an article in Wall Street Journal today being like Davos turns right. You know, like I feel like if you picked Haley, like, yeah, sure. You okay? of course, I understand the the. um assassination risk and the also just you know she's going to be working against you (laughs) risk right but on the other hand it kind of works both ways like i feel like it would give trump like a little bit of like skin in the game going the other direction too this is something that people have done in the past there's a problem with doing it with your vice president is that once you get your vice president you're stuck with your vice president for four years. Uh, yeah. You can't just yeah, fire the vice president. Yeah. You can fire cabinet positions. And like Lincoln did this pretty famously. And, you know, Trump tried this too in 2016. I I think the right, like, okay, Lincoln was a very Machiavellian politician. He was able to neutralize a lot of his enemies by like putting them in his cabinet. And right. They, that was his thing, right? That the team was of rivals whole, crap. Oh, yeah. 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 I mean, but it also backfired because he got shot and <laughs> you know, his cabinet tried to go buck wild. We came within one vote of pretty much having the administrative state, uh, administrative state in the 1860s rather than, you know, in the 30s. One, one impeachment vote away from that happening. Oh, but, really? Yeah, because the, the whole the whole impe- that entire crisis with the impeachment vote against Johnson was that he fired a cabinet member who Lincoln had appointed, and Congress pa- had passed a law that says you can't do that without their permission, which is like blatantly unconstitutional. But they almost got away with it because the entire Congress was Republican, and you know half of the South was still under military occupation. So like, I, you can you can go either way. I, I don't trust her. Uh, the only circumstances where I would say I would not vote for Donald Trump is if he had Haley as his VP. I would vote third party or not vote for president. Really? You wouldn't yeah. even throw the vote that way? Wow. No. I I, I think I despise her. She's like. No, I Hillary. do too. She's pure. I mean, she's. Ab- there, you, you could not have somebody worse than her. No. She's the worst, worst possible person. I liked DeSantis, though. I, Me I too. I liked him a lot. I like DeSantis. I don't. I I was in the, the for exactly kind of the reason you're saying. Like he's a great governor, right? He's a great governor. He's a crappy candidate. Yeah. But I don't really. I didn't get. You know. You kind of like. I'm. I'm not. You know. I can't compete with total political knowledge <laughs> as I can on some other topics. But you know, I was in the beginning being like, "What's so bad about DeSantis?" And I was tweeting that, and people were like he's he's part of the you know look at who's funding him like he's the swamp and all this stuff and i was like (laughs) i don't know about this well it 
look, when the before the primary really kicked off in earnest, I talked to people in you know rural Virginia where I live, and a lot of people were like, I like DeSantis. This is before Trump said he was gonna run for sure. And they're like, you know, I'd rather Trump they would say, I'd rather Trump not run again and we'll just have, you know, DeSantis, he's a good governor and all and blah, blah, blah. Now, when Trump declared, people were like, Well, I still like DeSantis, but you know, Donald's my boy. And after the indictments, it was it was just oh oh they're not gonna let us have him well f them I'm voting for Trump no matter what and like that's not I'm not saying that's why because Trump is is insanely popular but like I I think the the hate on DeSantis was I don't know it overplayed on Twitter like the, this it's a, a lot of meme magic crap because like you know you saw what he did when he got into office yeah he's bad at running for office good at exercising power whereas Trump. Yeah, Michael Jordan of running for office, but, but he didn't that, do a great job. Not right. That's exactly. I had that exact same feeling. Like, like, uh, yeah, like he really he did not know how to like run clearly, DeSantis. But man, he was so effective in those roles, and he's he's kind of like a Rufo guy, right? Like he was had the whole, you know, he, he fights these kind of like culture war battles in a way that seems effective and like they have teeth. And I don't know if you've been to Florida recently, but man, it's like, you can feel it. it Florida just feels very healthy and very free right now. You, you I've know, never, never been there, but you know, our friend Fredo lives there now and he says the same thing. I was like, you can feel the energy. It's just like yeah. living on a different planet. Rudy told, especially coming from California, which is the polar opposite. Uh, <laughs> you know, it's like, it feels like, Oh wow, there's potential here. People can talk here. You don't have to be constantly worried, you know, about saying the wrong thing and shit. You know, I mean, you still see people around here wearing masks, which is like, God damn, you gotta be are, fucking out of your mind. Are you in LA? Yeah, yeah, I'm in LA. You know, I so I wanna ask you because I people I'm a provincial person. I've lived my entire life in the Shenandoah Valley. God willing. I, I love I'm, it out there, man. Blue Ridge Mountains, I think. I think uh, like in my ranking of uh, ah, sorry, in my ranking of um, I gotta turn off my thing here. Uh, most beautiful places in in the country, I think Blue Ridge Mountains is number one. Then San yeah. Diego, number two. Yeah, well, San, uh, from what I've heard, San Diego has the most amazing weather. It's just like climate controlled every every day of the year. Yes, yeah, San Diego is like the real version of what the fake version of L.A. is like <laughs> L.A. is like actually just a shitty scrub desert, you know, like there's nothing here. L.A. there's literally it's like it's meant to just be like brown hills with chaparral. There's not supposed to be any palm trees. There's not supposed to be any trees above like, you know, four foot high. Like it's basically just like a desert scrub patch. But then they put all these palm trees and shit here to make it look all tropical because they can survive like pretty easily. But in reality, L.A. is like this. Very, like if you go to that, there's these uh, islands off of L.A. called uh, Catalina and the Channel mm -hmm. Islands. So like if you look at the natural habitat of those islands, it's what L.A. is supposed to be. And it's basically like a bunch of seal like sea lions sitting on these like desolate desert scrub beaches that it's just this kind of like brown dirt everywhere. Like that's what LA is supposed to be. But then we have this like fake Disneyland that's built in this like desert scrub. 
but then you go down to San Diego and San Diego looks like Hawaii. Like it's like truly tropical. Like that's what LA is like trying to be uh, is actually San Diego. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's how far, how far apart are these two cities? Like the, it's, I always lump them all in like Southern California, but they're really far. Like LA and San Diego are really far apart, aren't they? Eh, it's not that bad. They're like, it's like an hour and a half. Yeah. I mean, it's, if you live in Virginia, hour and a half is a good, you know, they'll get you across a quarter of the state. Yeah. But so yeah. what I was going to ask you is that whenever I, when I talk crap about California because the, the, you know, the politics of the place, I don't like it. But people say, like, yeah, it's not as bad as you say. It's a, it's a great place to live. They wouldn't want to live anywhere else. Like, do you like? Do you think is is L.A. still a great place to live? Well, like L.A., it, you know, like there is no L.A. Right? Like there is no L.A. There's no place. You get to L.A., you will never be in L.A. You'll always be looking for where L.A. is, and you'll never get there because there's no like place that is L.A. Everything is completely different and separated. And so I live in what I think of as the best part of L.A., which is Pasadena. And Pasadena is like really away from the fray of all of the really terrible stuff about L.A. in a lot of ways. Um, and so like Pasadena is is great. It's very beautiful. Like if you looked out the window right now, there's a beautiful view. The mountains are here and. Um, it's perfect weather every single day, pretty much. So like when, living in Pasadena, you do get the feeling like, what are people talking about when they hate LA? Because it, it works very well. It's very nice. I mean, yeah, you, there's a few homeless people around and you get a little bit of that, but it's like, it's pretty idyllic, honestly, living in, in Pasadena, but then <laughs> you go downtown and you're <laughs> literally looking at a zombie movie. You're looking at not even a not even like a nice friendly zombie movie. You're looking at like one of the zombie movies where the zombies like run at you, <laughs> you know, and like, the and Danny like Boyle zombie their asses. what the Danny Boyle zombie. Yeah. You're movie, looking at Danny Boyle zombies, you know, like th these are not like uh passive zombies, you know, and uh, you go down there, man. And it's like, you're going to have trauma after trauma. And I used to live in downtown LA and I was, miserable i hated it down there because it was just so awful so it's kind of a patchwork i mean i do uh it's d d california as a whole though is definitely like dying you know it's it's go you can feel that it's going the wrong direction there there's no you know like uh it's it's run by as tucker carlson said about about fox news it's run by fearful women you know, like that's, you, you can really get that feeling here, you know? Um, but at the same time, like we got a nice little dissident scene, but, uh, happening here. Um, you know, now that I've like come out and, you know, come out of the closet as like a, a, a right wing activist or whatever I am, like my life has gotten so much better in every way that it's like I almost forget about those frustrations that I used to have even just two years ago when I had to spend all my time around normies and have normie jobs and shit. <laughs> like now I hang out with all cool dissident people and we have like a little scene bubbling up here around where I live. And so 
it's going pretty well now, but I think like living as a normal guy in, in LA is fucking terrible. It's a, it's a horrible existence. Well, I ask this because, you know, you, you got the dynamic where these urban centers in California can uh, have, would it be fair to say they dominate like the, the, the politics of the state, like, you know, San Francisco, LA, places like that. So, so big population, they really control the state politics, right? Is, yeah. is that true? Yeah, 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 like, yeah. Uh, this might, that might sound like a, a naive question. See, I live in Virginia, and we're kind of we're going your way because we have Northern Virginia, where all the people who work for the government live now. And as it gets bigger and bigger, they have a, a larger and larger control, a share of control over the state. Whereas we're now at the tipping point where it's like, if there's a really a, a, a big election and you can get all the pe- all the chuds out to vote, they can still edge out Northern Virginia. But like. The demographics are unforgiving. Like, you know, 20 years from now, it's going to be, yeah. I don't know where California was 20 or 30 years ago. And it's like, you kind of wonder, well, you know, should I, when I get old, should I think about getting the hell out? Because who knows what the state politics are going to be like? Yeah, like, I like living in the valley, but. Yeah, and they the- will start fucking with you, man. I mean, that's yeah. the thing. Like, they will start fucking with you. And you hear that from rural people here, you know. that As you say, like, the you know, the, there's more Republicans in California than any other state in the country. And I think that that's true, but it's like this thin, you know, there's this thin layer of completely ridiculous libtardism on the coast. And then you go in, you know, a hundred miles or however from the coast, maybe even less, and then it's all Republicans who are farm people. I mean, you know, the Central Valley, you have Bakersfield. So that's an old oil town. Mm-hmm. You got all kinds of cattle, you know, mega ranches and stuff. You know, the five goes from the, the uh, you know, uh, the, goes up the middle of the state. You know, what's really funny is there's still no decent way to get from L.A. to San Francisco. There's no like clear road. <laughs> <laughs> there's no train they they like cannot figure out how to connect those two places so you have to take the five which is way you know it takes you an hour just to get from the five to san francisco so you got to go way out into the middle of the state but anyway as soon as you get into the middle of the state so you go over the grapevine is this like the getting into la and then you get right into the central valley and immediately all you see is trump you see mm. um you know, they're stealing our water. That's a big thing. Like the farmers are always like, you know, the lefty cities are taking all our water. And uh, so all those Central Valley uh, Republicans are really angry in California and they have no power at all. You know, they've been completely disempowered in every single way. They, they have no nothing in the state house. They have no ability to get anything done. Um, yeah. Just because the, the cities have taken over. And you could see something like that happen in Virginia because. Yeah. You know, you have the same thing with D.C. there, obviously. In what 20, I think it was like 2018, we had this election where the Democrats took control of the House of Delegates, the state Senate and the governorship. And immediately the first thing they did was try to functionally ban guns. And yeah. and this was like one of the things like this is one of the reasons why Youngkin is governor now and why we flipped control of the so briefly flipped control of some of those seats is because. That freaked everybody out. But it's like, I, I, you know, when we, I talk to people about this in everyday life, I'm like, you know, you need to be prepared for, they are like, we're going to take this back and we're going to do this and we're going to make this a red state again. And I'm always like, hey, look at the charts. That's, it's probably not in the cards. And like you said, these people love nothing more than to 
to torture yeah. their political enemies, which is is I mean, I guess you can say that about everybody, because like if you look at like my Twitter feed, you'll see people who are, you know, making jokes about doing stuff to their political enemies. But I this there's something about uh Uber progressives that specifically they enjoy controlling other people in a way that I don't think that the far right in America does like the far right in America is kind of, you know, you need to leave me alone and on my farm or in my castle or whatever. It's not, it's not somebody who wants to govern every aspect of your life. That's something unique to them in our country. At least I'm not sure why that is. Yeah. I, well, I don't know if it's because of the ideology or it's just because any ideology with that much power just gets drunk. He gets drunk on its yeah. own power and, and like, um, yeah, right. It's like, I have, I, my lefty friends here who are, you know, fewer and far between, but they, they obsess over what's going on in Texas. You know, they obsess <laughs> over, over like some bill that passed in Texas and like that, that, that like they, they talk about it and they're angry about it. And, you know, you see what Hollywood's doing. We're not going to go shoot in Georgia. Until, you know, because they, they, all the states want nothing more than to get the movies to shoot in their s- states. I'm a little unclear on why that even is. Like, they give these massive tax incentives where it's like a third of the budget. You go shoot a movie in Georgia, you get a third of that money back. And I don't really get why that's worthwhile for the states. It's got to be a status thing. Like, you know, uh, Atlanta, uh, people in Atlanta love to talk about how Atlanta is... You know, it's a big city now. It's important. It's a cultural center and all that crap. Like there are some people that idea really appeals to you. I've never understood it because I'm a yokel and that's kind of the opposite of what we go for. We're our thing is like, please don't let anybody find out about the cool stuff around here because they're going to come here and annoy us. But that's, I don't know. That's, I think that's kind of something that is true of most rural people in general. Yeah. Uh, this is something about it's maybe just this fact like that you physically live in a more isolated area. You, you know, you know, your neighbors, you don't have to deal with, you know, homeless zombies on a day to day basis. You get you ha- you get a different way than you do when you live like an apartment in the city. It's just like my friends who like I have because of the Internet, I have friends now who live in, you know, big cities and they live in apartments. And they'll just like mention something about how. Here's an example. I was talking to my friends. He, he had a package that was stolen by one of his neighbors. And he knows who got who stole it. And it's like, I said, why well, it's crazy? Like, you, uh, are you going to like confront him? Are you going to call the cops? Like, no, nah, I'm just going to tell Amazon and they'll refund it and send me a new one. And I'm like, so you're going to live next to this guy and you know he's a thief. What are you like? How does that work? And And my other friend piped in like, yeah, bro, that's just. How do you do things like, well, someone steals a package from your doorstep here and you know about it, like, they might get shot, you know, (laughs) you don't do that. It's it's just a different, it's a different way, but I understand their perspective. There's no point in getting upset about it. Nothing can be done about it. Just hit the button on the Amazon website and they're going to send you another one and give you your money back. (laughs) <laughs> whatever it's just it's it's really weird they needed it he needed it more than i did so i felt good about the you know that's the famous cartoon yeah it was like yeah. a, it was like a usb or hdmi cable too it's like nothing that some like it wasn't a valuable thing and this guy just stole it and kept it like 
what is he going to do with this cable? <laughs> but <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. That's that's a little extreme. But well, but here's my question for you. So you are obviously a, a you know a, a very intelligent guy. So do you feel that, uh, you know, are you missing the culture, you know, being out where you're at, do you feel like, uh, do you feel frustrated that you, you know, that you're not in more of a cosmopolitan place where everybody's having intellectual discussions and, and, uh, you know, you can talk about some historical Abraham Lincoln thing with somebody at down at the, at the coffee shop in the morning. Do you feel like you're missing that? Well, no, because you, you can, you're, you're running the people all it's like, well, for one thing, knowing a lot about politics is not like necessarily a good thing. I don't, I, I don't like if someone tells me they don't know who Ted Cruz is, I don't think like mm, this person's prevention. I'm thinking like, wow, I envy you. That's you're, 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 <laughs> you're doing God's work. But like you still, you can have conversations like that all the time. Plus with the internet, if you ever want to have, you know, an annoying conversation about ph philosophical stuff or politics, you just go on Twitter and do that. So no, I, I don't, when I was younger, I would say like, when I get old, when, you know, when I have some money to put together, I'm leaving this place is boring. And uh, I never did because I love it here. And the, you know, the, the older I get, the more I love it. So no, yeah. absolutely not. So you don't miss that. I lived in new Orleans for three years. Cause I went to law school at Tulane and, you know, not to say that new Orleans is like living in a rural place. So I, I <laughs> guess I've, I've never lived anywhere rural, really. I, I don't even know what that would be like. I've, I've never, I've never done that. I mean, I, I'm definitely, I get like antsy, you know, as soon as I'm in the country, I'm like, ah, I start to like, you know, like I said, it's like, I'm, I'm a city mouse through and through, but I did in new Orleans, like <clears throat> there's, there's like an anti-intellectualism in, in the South. There's like a, <laughs> there's like a feeling of like, man, do not, do not start talking about, you know, your, your philosophical thoughts on some book you read at the, it's like kind of rude, right? Like, at a, <laughs> you know, at like a new Orleans dinner party, you don't talk about that shit. Like they don't fucking want to hear it. You don't want to like talk about ideas like that. That's really much more of like a city thing and not even really like among the elites, the elites in cities also hate ideas. They don't want to talk about ideas. They want to talk about their dogs you know, the real elites, they don't want to discuss affairs. They don't want to discuss ideas. But the lower level of like the people I hang around with who are like, you know, middle class, upper middle class types, they're always down to like, let's talk about movies. Let's talk about some book you read, you know, and I, I do find myself craving that. Whereas in New Orleans, that was very frowned upon. Like it was like, we're talking about the Saints. We're talking about LSU. No, and I love talking about football. Don't get me wrong. But I did find myself kind of like missing that. A little bit. Yeah. Well, there's, it's kind of a holdover from like in the past, there was always expression, you don't talk about politics or religion. And then some people would add sex or whatever. You don't do that in polite company. And right. that's how people legitimately were for a long time. But I think that one of the great sins of the 20, 2010s was that now everybody talks about politics and ideas and, and stuff like that to an extent that they didn't in the past. So yeah. I, I've seen it creeping in, like, you know, my, my father, uh, 
guy who worked in the trades his whole life, a very intelligent man. He could talk about you know, uh, philosophical con- uh, stuff, but he would never allow political discussions in his house because he's like, you just people are going to argue. I don't want to hear it. We'll talk with you talk about something else. But, you know, after 2016, all of a sudden we have we're having po- uh, political conversations all the time. And it's like that wasn't it, it was something that happened. I think it was the, you know, like the old Trotsky quote, like you might not care about war, but war cares about you. Well, I yeah. think that people in the in the South and especially rural people realize that you might not care about these ideas and these people in Washington, but they do care about you They in, in a bad way. They hate you and they want to destroy you. So you might as well at least know what's going on. And that's the only, like, I I don't think it's important for people to understand politics. You don't need to do that, but it's important to understand enough that, you know, like, it's like, use an example. If you live in the city, you shouldn't be careful about which streets you walk down at night by yourself. Right. Well, politics are the same way. There are some things you do need to know about because they can get you fired. They can get you killed. That's important to know about. And, I think people are starting to realize that if that makes uh, sense. So where do you think that that came from? Like, why, why did that happen? You know, like oh. why, what changed that made people down there aware of that? Because I do wonder if, if that changed in Trump. New Orleans as well, like it very much could have. It, it was the reaction to Trump, like Trump yeah. ran for office and he was the, the, uh, the, Thanksgiving after the 2016 election in my family was like what Thanksgiving must have been like in 1945 after after we won the war. Like everybody was just on cloud now, like, yeah, we did it. <laughs> and, and, and and then slowly at, like over the course of the next year, as he became, as he was in the in office and they saw the stuff that was happening, what people were saying, not just this is what was so different. Even like when Bush was president, George W. Bush, they would make they would, you know, there were the Jesus land memes and they were making fun of dumb rednecks. But it was it was kind of muted and it was there was some subtlety to it. After Trump, they just straight up, you know, the propaganda went to a level 11 and they were pretty much openly despising not Trump, but the people who voted for Trump, Trump like people. They hate you hate the chuds and. Yeah, I think once people realized, oh, so it's not like you don't think about us, you don't care about us, because like rural people don't. I mean, you can't generalize anything, but like for the most part, rural people don't think about what's happening in New York City unless you know they see it on the news or something crazy happens. They don't think about those people. They're not obsessing about the laws in New York like the people in New York. Yeah, are obsessing like they're obsessed, the right? Like the reverse, where the New York people are obsessing about the laws in rural Virginia. Yeah. You know? Now, Yarvin will say that's why they win because in that you have to you have to become a person who who is obsessed about that. I I don't know, but I, I it would be it would be a shame if you had to become that kind of maniac to win. But I guess it's possible. You're saying that's what Yarvin would say? You, I mean, he straight up says that in in this political fight, the people who just want to be left alone will always lose, oh, and the yeah. people who I, I didn't realize he said that. But you know, yeah. I don't know about that. I, the the thing is, sometimes you have a political figure who come along who is willing to use their power to break the power of the of the enemy and make them leave you. Like Jackson, this is one of the, one of the reasons why everybody should love Andrew Jackson, is that. 
part of what he did was okay. There was this. There were people in Congress. There was the Supreme Court who were. I'll put it delicately. They were trying to stop westward expansion in the United States. And Jackson was like, no, I'm not going to let you do that. Uh, I'm going to ignore your rulings. I'm going to, I'll, I'll march. And I, if you disobey my rules, I'll get at the head of an army, come to your state, you know, occupy you, whatever. You're going to just, you're going to let my people do what they want to do. And it wasn't like he was going in the, in the Boston and like forcing them to change things he yeah. was just like you just you're just not allowed to tell people yeah you're not gonna let that. me you're not gonna tell me what we can't do right yeah yeah and you know they called him king andrew and, and stuff like that but he really didn't abuse his power to to hurt them what he did was temporarily set back their ability to dictate their their way of life on the entire country yeah and of course they won in the end so right so what what was he able to do? What was Jackson able to do during that time? Well, I mean, well, he he one he destroyed the the first the first central bank. Like we would have had one in the we would have had all the problems that we had with with banking would have been like decades and decades ahead of time. He so thoroughly destroyed that they didn't try it again until really tried again until like the twentieth century. Uh, he stopped the. This is I mean this. And I know this sounds horrible, but basically he stopped the courts from, from preventing, preventing us from stealing Indian land, which, you know, that, that sounds mean, but like realistically, there was no way it was going to be like, okay, everything west of the Mississippi is hunter gatherer territory. This is a big, uh, you know, the first K, of course, in law school, I went to Tulane. The first case you learn, I think, is some Monroe something. Uh, I forget exactly what it is, but it's a property law case that is like uh, the right of conquest. Mm -hmm. And it's like the legal uh, it's like the legal grounding for taking Indian land. And it's like I think almost every every law school starts with that case because it's like a creation of law. It shows you how the common law works. And of course it like forwards the woke agenda. Um, so yeah, you're right. It's like those, those, uh, so, okay. So the courts at that time were trying to make it so that that was not allowed. And he just said, no, we're doing it anyway. Oh he, yeah. He's, he's, he straight up said, okay, you've made your decision now go ahead and enforce it. You know, the, uh, the, okay. the Supreme court can use their <laughs> army to stop me from doing this. Yeah. Wow. So he he kept the frontier open for a while. Yeah, I mean, the, the, yeah, more important. I don't know. I, I don't. I don't want to go too deep into nineteenth-century politics because you know I don't. No, I don't it's think, fine. Cool. Uh, I don't know this. So, like, westward expansion was ne was never really in doubt after like i don't know what 1814 whenever we did the treaties with britain like for the first for the first for, from from 1790 until like 1814 whatever like britain was pretty much fun with not pretty much was literally funding natives and arming them to stop american expansion to the west like for obvious reasons you want you know you want to maintain your little buffer you want to keep control over this stuff 
that after the after the treaty was set, that matter was settled. It was never going to go back. There was going to be westward expansion, but there was a fight in Congress and and in in American politics in general about what should that be. Should should these like western should these western uh, territories be governed by my people or your people? And Jackson was kind of a kind of for lack of a better term a third way. He wasn't like a, a southern planter. He certainly wasn't a New England. Um, like a, a New England or Alexander Hamilton kind of you know banker merchant class guy. He was the chud. He was the chud candidate. He was the and like these people didn't ha- necessarily have love for the the Southern planters because like they would have happily turned that into like, all the Southern United States, you know, from the East Coast to the West into like more slave plantation colonies and that that wasn't what people signed up for you wanted to move west and get your own plot of land and have your own life and be left alone and jackson spoke directly to these people and they've never forgiven him for that if you even if you read in your history books about how when he became president that the chuds came and they spat on the carpet and they had like barbecues and it was just it was horrified all the people in washington dc because like look how dirty and these people like that was america and that's what they've never forgiven him for that and destroying the bank because like every good American politician, especially every good American president understood that banking is like the most evil thing on planet earth. And the moment you give them a foot in the door, they will destroy everything good about your society. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm just looking up Andrew Jackson here. So he was like a cavalier like <sighs> in the folkways thing. He was a cavalier because he's from he's from Carolinas. He's uh, like, I I don't know if he was Scots if he was he was yeah he says he's, he's Scots Irish yeah well Scots Irish weren't cavaliers they were the borderers no they were the borderers so he was all the way down he was a true southern uh, uh, he was a borderer <laughs> yeah well. That would be a good argument between me and my co-host Vlog Beef. He's he's Scots Irish. I'm uh, English and German. So like my family were Cavaliers. Yeah. Not, none of them were Scots Irish, but it, but yes, yeah, like the, they were the new arrivals at, at the t- like newish arrivals at the time. And I, yeah, today like, without the Scots Irish, the South would just be as cucked as the rest of the country. Right, because they like, were the only ones who were who were willing to fight and kill and like. Be crazy, well, right? the Cavaliers were willing to fight, but the thing is, after the after the Civil War, a lot of the ca- the 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 rich Cavaliers just integrated in the Yankee society completely. Yeah. Like to, like today, you you have like you, that's why you have like this descendant of Robert E. Lee is a, he talks about how he's committed to the Democratic Party and DEI and all that crap. They were happy to to join the other side. The the borderers never did. Famously hard to get along with, which is why why they must be respected and loved. Right, right, right. And they became like the Appalachians, right? Aren't yeah. they like the Appalachian like Appalachian people? The, especially the like there's a the dividing line pretty much where I live and like south of here in the Appalachians, all heavily Scots Irish. North, it's still there's still a lot, but it's also a lot of Germanic people who came in between the eighteenth and nineteenth century. Yeah. So what's the culture like out there? I mean, are we, like what what happens on a Saturday night? Like like right where I'm at? Yeah. 
if I had to describe the, I mean, if, the thing is, all all this is kind of sub, subsumed into a, a, like a general, I don't know, southern redneck culture. Like it's it's it, it's hard to explain because to me it's like just normal. But I guess if you had to describe it to an outside person, it would be kind of a mix between Appalachia and the kind of you know how the, the Ohio, uh, West Virginia, Western Maryland, like that kind of, I don't know what you call that culture, but it's different. It's not deep Southern. It's kind of a mix of that and the, and, you know, straight up hillbilly. Like mid Atlantic. Like Yeah. 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 Okay. And then, so what, yeah. So again, like Saturday night comes around, what's everybody doing? Well, I mean, realistically in the 21st century, Probably at home watching TV. Yeah. <laughs> but, but if you if you're not doing that, uh, people when I especially when I was younger, people would just hang out in in town, just like at the, for some reason at the car wash. People love to just hang out and drink beer and talk at the car wash, and yeah. you know, and, and people go to like just stuff that everybody does. Go you go to bars, have parties and stuff. It's it's. I mean, I don't live. I'm not around people who are going to like hoedowns or anything like that. Yeah. I'm just wondering like, right. Like, cause you know, once you start to get into the, the real West, people really do go to rodeos and shit. I mean, they really do do that stuff. You know, they like uh, go to the, the, you know, they, the, I forget what the term for it is, but the castrating all the bulls <laughs> and they, you know, fry up all the Rocky mountain oysters. You know, people really do do that stuff out out here and in Montana and things. But I'm just wondering, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, is it a lot of like hunting? Does everybody hunt? Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not. I'm. I mean, honestly, not a. I was a. I hunted more when I was like a teenager and young adult. I haven't. I haven't really hunted seriously. But yeah, people hunt. Oh, for, now the the thing where you know all the cattle are getting castrated and making Rocky Mountain oysters. Yeah, I, you don't see that around here. But what you do see is if people have hogs or cows you know when you butcher that is kind of a social event in itself because yeah. like you need you need a bunch of people there cutting up meat and but it's not you know not quite the same the thing about the difference between the west and the in the southeast and especially where i live which is like if you talk to somebody from alabama they might tell you that i'm not even southern because yeah I, i'm i mean i live in the valley but there's just everything so compact here. Like if you, you drive a little ways northeast, you hit D.C. And then from there, it's like Philadelphia, New York. Yeah. These places are all really close together. Like out west, you guys just have all this open space. You have miles and miles of land that's like yeah. either owned by the government or just wide open plains. That to me is really weird. I can't even conceptualize that because like here everything's just packed together. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that is true. And you get kind of used to things being really, really far away from each other. You know, it's like in L.A., there's nothing that's not 20 minutes in the car, you know, which is yeah. like that's crazy. That would have been insane to me when I first moved here. You know, I lived in New York. I lived in D.C. and even in New Orleans, you know, it's tiny. The idea of like spending 20 minutes every time I got in the car was like torturous now I'm so used to it. Now it's like, I don't even think twice about it. You know, you just zone out <laughs> and you're in the car for all kinds of time. You know, yeah, you know, I got to go to the West side. That's going to take me an hour. 
and I'll do that just to visit friends. You know, it's totally normal to me now. It's it's pretty crazy. It's a complete waste of time. I've had this conversation with people before. Like we have a similar thing. Like if I want to really go do anything other than like the the basic, you know, get groceries or whatever, you have to drive like 20, 25 minutes here. Yeah. But the thing is, you're driving on the you're driving on the highway through like forests and pretty beautiful landscape it doesn't bother me at all like having a commute doesn't bother me but as as one of my friends who lived in the sea pointed out yeah that's because you're not sitting in traffic for 20 minutes and right. you know stopping that's at a red light nice. that's probably soul crushing <laughs> yeah yeah pasadena is really lucky this is like the one little patch of la that doesn't have terrible traffic and the reason for that is they tried to build a giant freeway through the middle of pasadena in like 2010, 2013 or something. And the Pasadena city council actually, actually like managed to defeat them. So like the Pasadena traffic is not terrible. And it's, it's like, it's really like kind of disconnected from the, the um, highway system. It's actually crazy because to, in order to do it, the city bought up all the houses on this street. It's like very beautiful little street. And now you drive down, even today, you drive down that street, they're all abandoned and squatters try and get in there because in California, there's, there's like a squatter rule. If you're in there for 30 days, they can't get you out. (laughs) So it's like a battle between the police and squatters who are trying to like get into all those houses all the time. So you'll go over and it'll just be a police car parked in every driveway. And you'll be like, what are you doing here? And they'll be like, oh, I just got to make sure nobody's squatting. It's like day 29. I got to I got to check in. I, I remember a story. This is way before like bat flu. This is like the Obama era, like a news article about this, per- this lady in San Francisco who had a person staying in her house and like she couldn't get rid of the, like, yeah. the person that lived and had lived in her house long enough that she could not kick her out. Like she yeah. wasn't on the lease or anything like that. Just. Just you being you having your butt there in the house for X amount of time made it virtually impossible to get rid of them. It's like such a bizarre thing to have, but I guess it makes sense from like the patronage aspect where it's like you're take you're making these dumbass laws to take care of your own people. Like, you know, the I wouldn't even say bums, like the the deadbeat <laughs> the deadbeat part of the electorate. Well, and then there's the Ninth Circuit decisions. I mean, those are really crazy. That's that's uh, this this woman, Marsha Berzon, horrible, evil, evil uh, woman. Um, you know, made these th- this Idaho case. She's on the Ninth Circuit. Is she made it? You, you know, uh, and even Newsom. There's a the, the Supreme Court just granted certiorari, I think, to hear this case. So it, we'll get like a, a an actual decision on it one way or another. But um, she basically the law that she you know legislated from the bench is that a city cannot criminalize homelessness unless they have enough beds for all of the homeless people. So she created this like calculation that every city in the entire Ninth Circuit has to make. You have to have enough beds for the homeless, and that only then can you enforce any vagrancy laws at all? Because otherwise it's cruel and unusual punishment. (laughs) Think about how fucking insane that is. 
it's literally made it impossible. So now municipalities cannot enforce homeless laws unless they have paid for enough beds for every homeless person. <laughs> you know, that's literally the law. That is literally the law of the Ninth Circuit right now. I mean, you know, it's obvious it's impossible to enforce this. But what does that actually mean? That means that technically speaking, every municipality is responsible for housing every citizen if you take it far enough. You know, to, yeah. Of course. And, and right. I, I I, mean, I'm guessing that I don't I mean, maybe she doesn't realize this because a lot of people who just do what they're told. But like, ultimately, I think the goal for this is like the we've talked about this before, especially with our friend Malcolm Shayun. That Yeah, yeah. I know you guys have him on there a lot. He's he's a compact writer, right? That guy, Twink Zorg. Twink Tink Zorg? Tink Zorg. That's the other one. Yeah, yeah. The the owner of Compact Magazine has blocked me on Twitter because of, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so <laughs> like they farm these homeless people and you know, they basically managing the homelessness is is its own little NGO industry. And oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, a hundred percent. Homeless industrial complex. No, no, I mean they exist completely to keep the uh the funds coming totally. It's it's crazy. Like the, you think about, like this is the most wasteful, horrible way to to govern. It's like you intentionally create this problem, and then you pay your little NGO babies to to not even deal with it, just can to perpetuate the problem. It, you know, people are cynical about government, but they're not cynical enough because, like, if you ask the average person, like, why do you think they have these crazy laws? They'll either tell you, oh, well, they're naive or they don't know what they're doing. But it's like, yeah, they do know what they're doing. This isn't this isn't an intentional thing. And it's it, it, this is the one thing like we you know earlier I'm, I'm rambling on about the 19th century and stuff. And that might sound like just completely off the wall, non sequitur or whatever. But it's really not because it, to really get at this stuff, you have to go back to the 19th century. You have to go back to like. I don't know if Marbury Madison was actually 19th century or 18th century. You have to go back to like these, these basic ideas. Like, do you have the ability to, to create legislation from the bench? Because like, that's not in the constitution. That was a Supreme court decision that everybody just kind of went along with. Like the ninth circuit really doesn't have the power to do this tomorrow. If a leader said, no, you can't. You can't do this anymore. You can only say a, a law is unconstitutional. You can only do your enumerated powers as legis as a judicial branch member. This could all stop. Like we, like we're kind of we kind of larped our way into this, and we could just you can just say no tomorrow and change it all. Well, the common law. I mean, God, it's so hard to root this stuff out. You know what I mean? It's really. It's really hard to to root this shit out, uh, you know, once because I mean, I don't know the legislating from the bench thing. It, <clears throat> obviously, when you have somebody that's that insane and that naive as Marsha Berzon is uh, and they're not able to see that. I don't think she thinks she's legislating from the bench. Right. She thinks. Somebody brought or, you know, it's the same thing with this horrible woman in Maine. Right. Or, or the Colorado Supreme Court, the, the the woman in Maine. The reason she made the decision she did to get Trump off the ballot is obviously because she was set up by some patronage, mm -hmm. uh, you know, network to make this decision. Right. But. She, in her own mind, I don't think she realizes that she the, what happens is she gets delivered a complaint 
that's completely manufactured and made up by citizens in some uh, capacity where they deliver a complaint about somebody on a ballot. And based on the rules, she really is supposed to weigh in on this stuff, right? And private citizens really are supposed to be able to make a file a complaint with her. And she really is supposed to mm. offer a decision on it, right? So they find a way to use the system as it's written. And she just is so dumb that she doesn't realize what she's doing. It's the same thing with Marsha Brazan. It's like some they're using the system. They're completely manipulating the system in a way it's not supposed to be manipulated. Like um, the same thing in Colorado, right? That case was brought by Republican, supposedly Republican voters who had standing to complain about a, a, an amendment in the constitution. And again, the cruel and unusual and punishment thing, that's a constitutional amendment that somebody brings in federal court, but the somebody is not a real citizen. The somebody is paid for by, mm -hmm. you know, first democratic freedom, like org, <laughs> you know, which is like roots to George Soros, of course. And, and they just find citizens who have the standing to, to, you know, they find some homeless person who there aren't enough beds and, you know, there's a class of, class of them. They'll give, they'll be like four and then they'll pay that homeless person to be a defendant in the, you know, America first, not America, sorry, in the, <laughs> as I said, the citizens democracy thing. And then that ends up on Marsha Berzon's desk and she's sitting there thinking, well, it's not fair that this person is being criminalized for being homeless. Right. So it's like a <clears throat> it's like a society of the spectacle thing. Yeah, it's like it's like a fake. It's like a fake complaint. That is like convincing this judge that something's happening that's not actually happening, I guess. You know, I, I I came across this phrase and like as far as I know, it was just some random guy's blog. And I I I wish I could take credit for it because he explains this process so perfectly. He calls it power petitioning itself. Like the the whole idea is this this is a person it's not a person, you know, petitioning her to ask her to weigh in on this. What it is is she's saying, oh uh, I, I'm going to bring this up myself because it's effectively what's happening. She's the court is petitioning itself to to make this rule, and like so much of our politics in the since the 20th century have just been this. It's just straight up. Like it, when recently there was a blow up about the civil rights the Civil Rights Act because some conservatives are now coming around to the idea that maybe you know those laws that they that have been used for uh half a century now to like screw you over might not be beneficial and it might not have been a good idea like none of this stuff was organic it was it was all yeah. it was like if you want to really go back to that to that example like there were rockefellers who were bankrolling a lot of the civil rights activists and that's not to say if you like that, if you like what they're that they they made their cause unjust or whatever. But the point is, it wasn't an organic movement. It yeah, was something that people has been. I mean, dude, this is like it goes to this. All the Civil Rights Act shit was like this, right? You you yeah. learned that Rosa Parks was actually like a hardcore black activist for like fifteen years. 
yeah it, it, the it, bus. <laughs> yeah it's 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 all it's all entirely fake and like I, you 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 know you know about the law right you're you're illegal you're a legal mind yeah i mean i, I, I like Mar- I bring you like Marbury versus Madison. Like in theory, isn't this the entire, like the the thin reed that judicial review rests on? Like the, the uh, Marshall just said, oh, we can do this because Stone Cold said so. Yeah, hold on. Let me remind me of what Marbury because Marbury versus versus Madison. This is judicial review, meaning that American courts have the power to strike down laws and statutes they violate. Blah blah blah. Yeah. Marbury regarded the single most important the constitutional law. Uh, yeah, it's the constitutional law is actual law. It's not just a statement of of uh, political ideals. Uh, okay, remind me what's the exact decision of Marbury versus Madison? So, I first remember this. The case isn't that important. The case is, I think, like i think it was like adams and his midnight appointments and jefferson taking on the court and fighting it or over who, if this particular person should be in in office but like that was kind of the sideshow the the important part is that uh john marshall just says okay this law that the congress passed is unconstitutional and we're striking it and we're doing this it's not it doesn't say that in the con- that we can do this anywhere in the constitution we're just interpreting this as one of our powers and yeah, everybody okay, kind of right. went along they, with this it. is where the courts get to say they can and can't do things based on whether it's constitutional. Right. And, and, and yeah, yeah. Okay, that was I, gotcha. it, I understand the reason for the compromise, because like if you didn't do that, there would have been like if, if you think about today, if if you could just pass if Congress every time it shifted could just pass laws and right. they were set in stone, it, yeah. we would have another civil war. But yeah. the thing is, like over time, what that meant was the only branch that really matters is the judicial branch because yeah. they now effectively craft law with their decisions right right so if you were an enterprise, not effectively they literally do craft law because we live in a common law country so yeah the the decision is the law it's not yeah. you know that's literally is the statute obviously if an enterprising person came along in like the executive branch you just said you know what? I looked at the Constitution and I don't think you can actually do this. I'm going to ignore what you say, Supreme Court. And if you don't like, which is, this is exactly what Jackson did. And he yeah. got away with it. He did it yeah. one time. It wasn't, but, you know, you you have this legal argument where you can just say, okay, this, this all stops today. Now, I know you need the actual political power to do that first, but that's a, that is a like an ejector seat for a lot of our problems. Like eventually, Everybody agrees. Somebody, somebody has to be daddy. Somebody has to come well, back. What, and, but then, what's even the point without Marbury versus Madison? What even is the point of the Supreme Court? I like because what are they going to be? I guess it's just all other federal statutes. Like they're just the last, right? It's like yeah. what are whatever the U.S. Code is. Well, it's like uh, okay, yeah. they would be the 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 court of last resort. Like if if. Yeah whatever Trump appeals something, it goes to him, but they can't say you can never do this. This is unconscious. This, they can't just say, okay, well, we're striking down all these laws. You can't do that. Well, but yeah, I just mean like, what are they even going to be evaluating on them? Right. Because if I feel like everything they hear now is constant con law. Right. So like well, what, what, what laws, what statutes would they even be evaluating? You know? Well, I mean, they would, I guess in that case they wouldn't be. They would just be actually doing the job that 
the Supreme Court was uh, intended to do when it was created, which is just be the top, the, the upper echelons of the federal court system. That like when you appeal, this is as far yeah, as well, that, but that's what I'm saying. So it would be all the other federal laws. Yeah. Like they would still have to be evaluating federal laws. It would just be everything outside of the Constitution. Yeah. You're making a great point. Just saying, like, well, what do they would they talk about? Because this is all they do now. Like, yeah, this is all they do now because this is their uh, their job. Now they're a yeah, legislature. Now this so has become their job, right? It would be a really boring job if they were doing it yeah, the way. Because it, it would just be all like procedural shit. Like I can't even remember what. There's actually very few federal laws. Like, there's not really that many federal laws. Uh, in like most of this shit is face state law. Like, I'm trying to think of like what federal laws affect us every day because everything comes from everything comes from the uh, the the constitutional review. It all comes from, um, you know, like the the interstate commerce clause and shit, which is all kind of goes back to the constitution. It all goes back to uh, the constitution. I, I mean, I think the, the real answer here is that pretty early on, it became obvious that you, you had this, like even at the time, at the time, 1803, it was obvious. This is going to be a big country is growing really fast. Eventually, we're not going to be able to control it with Congress. You're going to have to have more. And then as, as the empire got bigger, the blue blob got blobbier and, and more powerful. They had to do more. They didn't have to, they chose to do more and more stuff. That's what, how the administrative state comes around, you know, the Chevron exception, all that crap. Uh, why, why now like the EPA can affect, can like not effectively, it can literally just announce like Charles Haywood, uh, Charles Haywood, the uh, worthy house yeah. had a great article about this, uh, just laying out examples of, like the yeah, is the CDC just issuing their own laws just from the, the pen of this one lady wrote down, okay, now everybody in the country has to wear a mask. <laughs> like they don't have that authority, but she just said the stone cold said so. So you're going to do this and everybody goes along with it. They realized the only way for America to be an empire and function is for to, to have this bureaucratic priestly class that can do this. Yeah. And the problem is, I guess, the problem from our perspective is because the kind of the, the party's winding down and it's not, we're not quite as rich as we used to be. They're now turning the eye of Sauron on us and screwing with us. And we don't like it. It's like the, the, the question is how do we, how do we deal with the, the monster? How, how do we deal with it? And like one way would be, well, neuter it but like nobody can uh, can envision what living in america would be like if you didn't have you know the permanent bureaucracy running it because we, we this is how our this is how lives have been, our lives have been life has been for us for our parents some people's grandparents can't even remember a time before this existed and and that's why all these crazy dissident ideas nobody when people say that that's unrealistic. They're right. But nobody's idea is realistic. Nobody has any F and clue like how, how this would look, how to stop it. But so give me an example of how the administrative state is like something that we just so take for granted is something that they do that they really shouldn't be allowed to do. Like, what's an example of that? You know, well, daily life. Uh, well, I, I, I'm going to cheat and just, I'm going to crib yeah. the worthy house. Like the, just they forced us. To, if you went into a like a federal facility, you had to wear a, a 
you know, paper cover over your face. And some lady in an yeah. office signed the paper piece of paper and said, you have to do that. Right. And like that, that, you know, that, uh, that spread out from just, are you going, most people don't go into a federal office in their day-to-day life, but you, you might go to a hospital, you might go to a school, you might go to all these places that just effectively copy and paste whatever the, whatever the federal guidelines are from these bureaucracies. <clears throat> and then your state bureaucracy just goes along with it. And like, yeah. If you lived in Florida, well, that wasn't the case. But like that was the like the only state in the union that didn't in some way go insane. I mean, in Virginia, we had masking in theory for a long time. And like I would notice this because I would have to travel further afield in the state for work. And like if you're near Richmond, everybody's wearing a mask. Yeah. If you're in Rockingham County, nobody's wearing a mask. And it's yeah. just stuff like that. You know, that that was dictated from some random ass bureaucrat right yeah no it's true and there is there is a lot of things like that that are they come down from <laughs> from the feds and and people just accept even though it's right it's not it's not a law so why do we have to why yeah why are we subject to this <laughs> yeah uh, when, and i i think i don't know if if i'm cribbing him again but like uh people talk about the dear colleague letter that obama sent in, I don't know, 2013, whenever that was, that he sent to the, to the university system basically saying, okay, you guys now have to have a star chamber for uh, male students who are accused of sexual impropriety by anybody. And like, you have to assume that they're guilty before proven innocent and all these, all this crazy stuff that popped up that we've kind of forgotten about because you know, the, the Trump era before, before Trump, this was the, the thing that everybody was focusing on this crazy, what they called the rape, uh, the, the rape hunting epidemic. grounds. Yeah. Yeah. That guy, that writer was so good. The guy who wrote into the wild and into thin air crack yeah. hour. Crack, yeah. Fucking great writer turned out to be the biggest cuck on earth. He wrote well, that like super anti-Mormon book, which I never, was I never great, but it this. was like, what, why do you care about the Mormons? Like leave the Mormons alone. And then he does the hunting ground book was, which is the biggest crock of shit I've ever seen in my entire I didn't I read know that he, book. I didn't know he wrote, he wrote that. He, yeah, he, he wrote hunting ground, which is like, get the fuck out of here. John crack. About like, how what, dangerous what the campuses were. Yeah, yeah, like how oh the every man is is hunting women on the fucking campuses. It's like, bro, yeah, what do you think being a fucking twenty two year old man is? That's the your your whole job is to try and get laid. Like, what the fuck? How did he miss that part of life? That's so funny. It, it, I read I read Into the Wild and uh, Thin uh, Thin Air the about the Everest disaster, and it's like he attacked some of the people who were like some of the climbers and the people who were working with the, uh, I forget the name of the companies, the expeditions, like he attacked one of the guys saying like, Oh, he screwed up a job and people died. But it was, uh, yeah. it was, and that, that guy eventually I think died on another mountain trying to help somebody. Yeah. He, he, he was a strange cat cause he's a really good writer, but like the, the worshipful tones he writes about the, the kid who. Yeah. Right. The, oh yeah. Yeah. Christopher McCandless. Yeah, you know, he's a very typical, I talk about this a lot. It's like, you know, AJAB, all journalists are bad. <laughs> you know, like, they all, because they, this is why I could never do it. You know, I used to write for LA Weekly and Vice and shit, and I could never, 
I couldn't play the role of journalist properly. Even when they would send me to interview some rapper or something, I would always get in a fight with the rapper or not like a physical fight, but just like I would argue with them because the role of a journalist is to pretend to be super interested in somebody else, but really you're just trying to forward your own will, like pretending to like interview that person, but really it's just about you, you know? Like John Krakauer is totally the worst type of journalist in that way. Like he's just casting judgment on all these people, right? It's like, that's not your fucking job. You know, just tell the the story. The Everest spook was especially funny because like he insinuated himself into this expedition and like he wasn't, he was a climber, but he wasn't a person who's ever climbed a really tall mountain. And like he, they asked him to help them go back for people who were survivors who were lower or closer to the base camp especially like that texan guy like they yeah. kind of just they he, he just sort of left him on the mountain and then like he immediately pins this book where he's throwing uh, like some of these other climbers under the bus it's yeah. very, <laughs> yeah, it, it it very i'm a journalist i can't no, no, no i can't go get him that, that would ruin the <laughs> that would ruin the story you, you brought up a great point that i was actually thinking about today because people were talking about elon musk and there was a this is it's not an important thread but the twitter thread about how like the comp twitter's lost they said 90 percent of its value since he took over and they're like this is a big l for elon musk and I, I thought that was the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Like, like you guys realize no billionaire buys a media company to make money. Yeah. Like, that's not why Carlos Slim bought the New York Times. That's not why Jeff Bezos bought Amazon. You guys realize this. And like, it's not even a thing that you can forgive because you, well, you're, you're naive about 21st century politics. Like this has always been what journalism was. If you go back to the, if you go back to like the first newspapers in America, they're literally just something that people cooked up so they could attack their political opponents. Right. Yeah, they're just they like pamphlets. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, like go, going back to at least Jefferson and uh, Jefferson and Adams's election, like there was, there were these newspapers that would print like horrible slander, like I think one of them called uh, Adams a hermaphrodite or something, or something <laughs> like that. Like this is what they've always been. And people, it's funny because the people you read in their history books about yellow journalism, right? Yeah. About Hearst, but like he 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 didn't do anything that people weren't still doing at the time. It's just because he he picked the wrong horse during some of these elections. Now you can look at him as an example of this is what journalism is. But this is what it all is. Except I've no I found this from from social media there are people who join the join that career and they they try to do the job the way they like the way that it advertises itself they genuinely try to do what a journalist is allegedly supposed to do and I, and they always end up disappointed and like a lot of times they end up fired i, I really like lee fang I, i've always liked his work i feel like yeah, yeah, he's great. He's the yeah, he does like uh yeah, I've seen his stuff. He like talks about colleges and shit. What does he do? Lee Fang? I've seen he, him around. He's talks about he's talked about a lot of political stuff in the last few years and he he got on the wrong side of some of his co-workers because you can just sense from his work and the way he the stuff he says, a lot of times it's not the most popular stuff he gets in the trouble for it. Like people like that when I think of them, you know, he's not he's not a B. But it's like you're you're in a job that requires you almost to be a, a B. Yeah, you know, it's right. It's it's a perfectly like Nietzschean. It's the most like Nietzschean last man profession because your <laughs> your will is like 
completely hidden. You know, it's like it's complete like like you are you're reversing like you're exerting your willpower on the world utterly under the guise of doing the opposite. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like like it's completely like in reverse. And uh yeah, I think you're right. I think that the the solution to this is not to like pretend like we have this like oh let's let's get back to objective journalism <laughs> like, no we just need to admit that there has never been objective journalism stop pretending to be objective journalism and just like you know just admit that this is your agenda and like go for it you know i mean that's what was and not i'm not actually not a big hunter s thompson fan but you know, at least the rise of subjective gonzo journalism, it's like, okay, we're just not going to pretend like we're, I'm just not going to pretend anymore. Yeah, oh, uh, absolutely. It, that's, that's one of the reasons why people love, loved him so much is because like you can, you can tell when someone's telling the truth about them being a liar. <laughs> if, the, yeah. that, if that makes like you could, he's not putting on any pretense and people find that refreshing the, the the idea of getting back to like the good old days where you had real journalism it, it always makes like that older people talk about like Cronkite or whatever yeah and it was funny when they had that Kennedy assassination one of the I, I don't know if it was it, it was it what couldn't have been last year but it was one of the anniversaries of his assassination they had like here is the entire like eight hour coverage of this of this event and I watched some of it and like I think it was Cronkite himself who's like, they go on when he's been shot in Dallas. They're like, well, obviously this is the work of right wing extremists. Like, there's a big problem in this country with right wing. Like, it's like you know, he, he's he, if you if you believe the Warren Commission, he was shot in the head by a devote a devotee of Karl Marx who like defected to the Soviet Union. It's the exact opposite of of like of what reality was. And this is Uncle Walter. You know, this is the guy who's the patron saint of journalism. Like, no, it was, they've always been like this. Yeah, so, uh, well, like the meme. The big, this is pure mold bug, right? That it's like, actually, these guys yeah. have been hardcore leftists all along. Like, and the whole the whole notion that they were ever objective is is a complete lie. Wait, who was shot in the head? Huh? Wait, who John F. Kennedy. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, he was shot in the head by a, a communist who who defected to the Soviet Union, and like he was killed by he was killed by a commie, ale you know, allegedly. But everybody at the time was were like, like this is really the problem of right wing extremists. How are ah, we going to deal oh, with it, these it, right? It, you know, okay, and that's what Cronkite was saying at yeah, the time. The the, the the patron saint of objective journalism. Yeah, it, it, it's 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 all it's tiresome. That that whole that whole thing is funny because like if you if you went by the his American historical narrative about what happened in 1963 in the height of the Cold War during the second Red Scare when there was all these people who were just absolute fierce anti-communists in the government and uh, a communist killed the president on on uh, in front of everybody it was there was a videotape of it and uh, nobody did it just nothing happened there was no there was no war there was no crackdown on left-wing activism or anything just eh Shit happens. It, that that's it. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean that's that's <laughs> the big red pill, isn't it? I mean that was my my true like political red pilling moment was uh, reading that thing that was going around a while back. Of it was a review of the book, a uh, Days of Rage. Yeah, 
Did you ever remember that? That was like one of the like red pill materials you had to read. Like you had to read like, you know, letter to an open-minded progressive. And this was like on the reading list. And it was called like, uh, it was in like something called Fahrenheit 451. <laughs> you remember this? No, no, no. Uh, who wrote the, the... It was Days of Rage Review. It was like somebody who's still around. Yes. Oh, sorry. Status 451. It was by <laughs> David Hines, who's like still around. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I haven't. I haven't read that at yeah, all. And I've read like, you are here. I'll, I'll uh, screen share really quickly. But, but uh, this was like one of the things that was like the true red, even more than Moldbug. And it was like um, I've now read this actual book. And you know, in the 1970s, there was like three thousand bombings. Yes. in the United States. Yeah, like every day, a couple. There a was couple, like a, right, there was a left wing bombing every day. They bombed Congress yeah. one time. Yeah, dude, and like no, the last person time a congressperson was killed, it was. I mean, I don't remember if maybe a senator was killed because I guess the the you know the guy uh, Guyana that's a congressperson yeah, got killed was, there too, yeah. but. Uh, and that was kind of lefty. But even before that, like a, a congressperson was straight up assassinated by Puerto Rican leftists, like separatists. Yeah, they tried to kill the president. They, right. Uh, right and, yeah. And we never hear about any of this shit. You know, these guys about... get get university jobs, right? Oh, yeah. You know, that, like we don't hear about this at all. That's hilarious. Like the Puerto Rican thing. I only heard about that because I was watching like the History Channel years back, and like they would do the all the. The FBI files and stuff, and one of them was this Puerto these Puerto Rican separatists sh shooting up somebody, and like how the Secret Service dealt with. It. And I was like, wait a second, why have I never heard about this? It seems like a big deal. You know about right. every every you know attempted assassination, but this one and yeah, like you know, David, uh, like uh, Burroughs yeah. wrote a bunch of stuff about this, and like it was. His tone was really, I don't know enough about Burroughs to understand it, but his tone was Wait, really- Wait, are you like, talking about Burroughs or you about William Burroughs? Uh, who was it that wrote the, uh, the, oh, the- David Mount? What's that? Are you talking about the book I was just showing you? Uh, I don't, did he write that? I don't know. He wrote Brian about, Burrow wrote no, that. No, I'm talking about the uh, the guy who wrote the Mau Mau and I, I'm sorry. Oh, I, oh no, that's- uh, Mau Mau and the Flat Catchers. Yeah, that's Tom Wolf. I think Tom Wolf. I, I get yeah, yeah, I, yeah. for some reason I get him and Burroughs mixed up, even though like they're totally different people. Yeah, yeah Burroughs is like a pedo heroin addict. <laughs> so <laughs> sorry, yeah, Tom, Tom Wolf wrote all these uh, amazing passages and like Moldbug samples of them of like just the pure patronage model of these left wing. Yeah. They they yeah. they would send you send the uh, social worker out to the ghetto and they would meet like literal gang leaders who were back then they still had those tower blocks the that were housing projects that were basically like a fortress for for gang members and they're just trip handing money off these people and and it makes no sense until you realize oh yeah so like every every summer they would just set the city on fire and have riots and take university presidents hostage and stuff and like that like why would you tolerate that but it, it of course you do because like they give you license to do the thing you wanted to do in the first place like the university president who's being held hostage he's not being held hostage this is like, uh, what was the, the Blazing Saddles scene where he puts the gun to his own head? Like, you know, do what I say or else. 
Yeah. And these people are on the same team, and it doesn't make sense until you <laughs> until you realize they want the same they want the same goal. They need an excuse. They need an excuse to to do these things that yeah you, that you don't want them to do. If yeah. that makes any sense. Well, and this is it's the march through the institutions. Is yeah, that kind of what we're talking about. That's a big part of Rufo's book is the march through the institutions. Like you know they they said they were going to do this because the Black Panthers didn't work out. The Weather Underground like turned everybody off, right? They they kind of lost their their clout. So the only way they could go, that's Rufo's point, is the only place they could like take their talents was to the <laughs> universities where where people were stupid enough to like believe their bullshit, you know. And I think that it's really true. There really is something to that, man. You know, the whole, you know, the whole like California group which is Kamala Harris mm -hmm. and, you know, the Gettys who, of course, Newsom is like a Getty Manchurian candidate, basically. Uh, and the Pelosi's and all these people, and like, you know, uh, Feinstein, they all come from that far left academic uh, tradition with, yeah. with uh, you know, like Alinsky, I think it's all, it's all that, that same group, Obama, you know, I think they're all from kind of the same ultra left intellectual Marxist core of people. All like I know Buttigieg, wasn't Buttigieg's father uh, a Marxist scholar? Kamala oh, Harris's yeah. father was one too, I think. And yeah. one of the funnier things about Angela you know, Davis, they're all like come yeah. from the Angela Davis people. Like Barack Obama's mother was a was a communist and. Her, her dad's friend her, her dad was a unit like university guy too right yeah. anyway they were hanging around with people who were like left-wing academics it's it's if like people i think if regular people pay attention to this or you know you had an actual political opposition that wanted to oppose oppose this and like weren't cowards like the republicans are this would have come up like rather than just like saying prowling around with terrorists you just say you would mention maybe how every single person in this party has ties to these radical groups that were yeah. terrorists. Right. And then who clearly people didn't like or else they wouldn't have had to go into the universities. Right. I mean, they wouldn't have had to 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 disappear. I think also like Manson had a lot to do with that. Right. It was like these people are bad, like these fucking hippies. You know, these, these <laughs> this is not good for us. Um. Yeah, no, I, it's <laughs> like I also I learned recently that, you know, what one of the big creations of this group is, is Kwanzaa. Yeah, that nobody so cares about. Kwanzaa is like a California left wing holiday. Like they made it up. They just made up Kwanzaa like that. It completely comes from that. So it's so funny that when Kamala Harris is being up there being like, we really need to celebrate Kwanzaa. Like she made the shit up. It's like her holiday. Like she, it's her people made that, made it all up. Uh, you TV reference. You ever, ever watch Futurama when you were younger? The, the, the Matt Groening cartoon show. Yeah, of course. The, there's that bit where the, there's the Santa robot and then there's the Kwanzaa robot. And he just gives kids a book that says, what the hell is Kwanzaa? And, and, he, and he's get, he looks at the guy and he says, like, I've been doing this for 800 years. It's like, like, no, still no one cares about it. Like, you can't, you can't force people to care about this you stuff. Manufacture you can, it. Right. Well, this is one of the things, you know, uh, Rufo, the, 
Rufo gets criticisms from some people and this isn't right. Blah blah blah. It's not effective. No, Rufo is is on this is on the most important thing that if you cut off their funding, all this stuff dries up and blows away in the wind tomorrow because there's no organic. Uh, desire for any of it it's no, all literally your money Kwanzaa, man it's yeah. like completely fake you know nobody wants any of this shit. And like rufo and and, De and cory d'angelis and all these people who they they say are like they're reformers and they're not effective they are attacking the like the very base of this structure if you if you kick these people out of the universities you dry up their funding for their grants and stuff they can't function because nobody would pay them to do this to other do than right. with your tax money. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that that's really true. I mean, I think that, you know, I mean, even Moldberg would agree that the universities mm -hmm. are a problem. He just, you know, he just takes issue with uh, the, <laughs> the, any doing anything practical at all. <laughs> well, that's, a, I mean? that's the cheat code. When you're in dissident politics, you can just tell people, well, that's not realistic. That's and not it's, gonna work, right? Yeah. And you're right because nothing has worked. So you're. Yeah, you're... I, nothing has worked. I mean, I don't know. I like in in. Uh, I love like Moldbugs. I love when he gets like his roasting of uh, Rufo. <laughs> I I just love reading it. He's the only guy who writes politics in a way that is interesting to read. Like, oh yeah. Everybody else, even I mean, Rufo's just like shoot me in the fucking head like yeah it's like i'm i love rufo and i completely support everything he's doing but as a writer it's so boring you know it's just like oh my god it's like so high-minded and boring it's like and he's got a hit it's adderall writing you know that's what these people they write adderall <laughs> writing because it's like so way over inclusive it's like dude get a little bit of style here you know like just like it's fine things to omit. You don't need to explain everything. Um, I felt that way about his book too. It was just un it, like you can't. It's just like okay, it's very smart, but I don't need every single fact here. You know, try and be a little inspiring. This is what Trump does very well. He just yeah. cuts through the. You know, even as a writer, I don't know if he actually. I read his book. His book is great because it's just like there's not a lot of explaining in it. He doesn't feel the need to like have a lot of statistics and facts to support his points. Um, and, but Moldo is like the one guy who writes wonky shit. That's like, it's really fun to read. Yeah. I, that's the key to why you are was so good was that you could, it, you, you would have, you have fun reading it and, yeah. and you know, whatever, I, I have some disagreements with them in the last few years, which that's going to happen in like dissident politics or whatever, but like you still, I still go back and read that stuff and it's in, he genuinely like the the vernacular way that he writes. He wrote stuff, legitimately helped me understand some things that I just I just simply wouldn't have thought of. You know, the, and being a really real, like he kind of would read all these. He would read all this stuff and then give you the Reader's Digest version of it. And I know some people take that as like an insult or whatever, but it's the exact opposite. Like you need somebody who can do that. You need someone who can explain this stuff to you on like a dumb person level because like that's that's what we need yeah wait but who who's able to do that i'm a dumb i thought i thought moldbug's writing well, it's funny like you said because most people would say the exact opposite that moldbug is like impossible it's very difficult to digest him but in a way you're right it's kind of like both it's like moldbug is simultaneously like extremely dense and difficult but it's also he's the only guy who's going to be like 
quoting 50 cent, you know, at the <laughs> at the end well, of like a paragraph about the Supreme Court. Like, well, I'll give an example. Like, what I mean, like in his in his in you are he, he there's this lengthy part about this crazy. He has a YouTube video of this crazy guy in downtown somewhere who's just smashing cars that come by and yelling. This, this is these are my streets. And he's just like he's in a garden variety, insane person that you see everywhere now. And like he's saying like. He, the guy he explained like this is sovereignty this man owns this street like you think you might think that he doesn't but you know he's going to bash your windshield he's going to run you off the cops aren't stopping him yeah. he he has control he is the sovereign like stuff like that like i i really appreciated that because yeah. it, it, it's funny for one thing and two like he it, yeah. he's right it, the the, the meme lately is like a, the point of the system is what it does yeah well, if, well that's what he's been saying i just had a thing about that in American mind. And I got it from Oren McIntyre who was tweeting about yes. it. Yes. Yeah. One of the, one of the greats. He's the, I mean, I would say next big thing. Cause he's already a big thing, but yeah, I had him on, I had him on here uh, not too long ago. He was great. Yeah. He's cool. You know, we argued about Bud Light a little bit. I mean, yeah, he's <laughs> one of these like systems guys. He, he has all kinds of strategy and, uh, and yeah, he's based and, I think he makes based stuff like very palatable in a, in a good way. Yeah. He's a human being yeah. that, that goes a long way. Cause yeah. that's not, not all the people who work for these companies are, what was your argument about Bud Light? What was your position on that? Well, so, you know, he was saying that we should not forgive Bud Light and mm -hmm. that, so Bud Light did this thing where they, you know, they didn't apologize. No. But they did get rid of Alyssa Hayner Schneid and her boss. So they kind of got yeah. rid of them. And then they very quietly, clearly paid off a bunch of people that are like on our side, yeah, including yeah. Dana White and Kid Rock. And then Dana Wright and Kid Rock both went on Tucker for like no good reason. And they both started their Tucker segments telling us we needed to forgive Bud Light. Right. Uh -huh. So clearly what's happening there is that Tucker understands that he needs to get big advertising dollars for Tucker News Network, whatever yeah. his thing is called. And Bud Light is kind of signaling, all right, we're willing to pay, play ball here because they gave UFC, for example, $100 million, like for, for uh, sponsorship. So obviously that's enough for to get Dana White to say fucking anything. You know what I mean? <laughs> So I, what's ha my argument was like, look, yeah, of course we shouldn't think that Bud Light is our friend, but at the same time, if they're going to fund Tucker News Network, I, I think that that's like that's a win, right? I mean, if they're mm -hmm. if they did if they're that afraid of pissing us off again that they're going to fund Tucker Carlson as their his primary advertiser, which he needs. Like, I think that's kind of that. I, I would say that's a victory. Right. But Oren was like, no, no, that's not a victory. They don't mean it. It's not, you know, we need to, Oren has this list of things that we need in order to call it a victory, which mm -hmm. is like friends hired, enemies yeah. fired, and like a, a true apology. Whereas I'm more like, look, as long as we can get our patronage pipelines up and running, I don't really care. You know, I, I don't need them to like apologize. You know? Yeah. That, I, I, yeah. The apology doesn't matter. Like the, the, yeah, the Patriots pipeline does, I guess the argument, the good argument would be like, 
giving money to Tucker and Kid Rock ain't good enough. When when you start, you know, when, if you're going to give money to the March for Life and the NRA, then we'll be willing to forgive you. If you're you're going to do these things, like you're actually going to hire our guys, then yeah, then we'll start drinking your horse pee again. You think Tucker is is you think giving the NRA would be better than giving to Tucker? No, well, yeah, that's not a good example. Just yeah, you know, I'm just saying Tucker's you know giving it to a media person. Yeah, eh, it's not a, not the I, same I see, as right, 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 right. Is giving it yeah. to like the anti-gay <laughs> the organization, you know, like that. <laughs> yeah, we'll see when you give it to the whatever. Right? Is there an anti-abortion like the Catholic League or something? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, they're they're right about this basic idea is that, like there's nobody who ever has to apologize for saying something mean about like family values and then like donate to some some you know trad cause that never happens. It's always in the other direction. Yeah. But the thing, like I I don't know, it 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 doesn't real it, like Bud Light. The message was received. Like they lost a s load of money. They know what they did. They know the problem. They put out all these commercials. It's like, I'm a cowboy and I love Bud Light. And like, that, that's, that is crying uncle. But I, I honestly say like, you know, F them, salt the earth. I can see that too, because it, it make them an object lesson forever. Yeah. It's just not going to happen though. You know, I should have pushed back against Oren Harder. I, I was sort of starstruck and we're so excited to have him <laughs> that I, I kind of let him win the argument, but I could have uh, <laughs> I, I could have gone harder, harder against him than I did. And now that I'm thinking about it, I, I, I kind of like. You're not going to get them to fucking apologize, man. It's just not going to fucking happen. And you're not going to like I think you got to give the people somewhere to land. And yeah, I mean, like AB InBev, they could have just folded, but they could have just said, fuck it. You know, this is only 1% of our entire balance sheet anyway. You know, I mean, it would have been a huge loss and it would have been pretty crazy. But it's like, if they were really that dedicated to wokeness, they would have been like, all right, fuck it. There is no more Bud Light. You know, it's just Bud. It's just Budweiser, you know? So I don't know. I don't know if like them, they're not going to get destroyed because it's a, the company's too big. Mm -hmm. So without that, what do you really expect them to do? I don't know. Like... I guess there's the art of the deal argument where you always ask for more than you're going to get so that you can, you can, uh, when you're the compromise is, is better than you expected. Yeah. I mean, that was so good though, man. That truly was a vibe shift. That was really, that was really the moment where, uh, the, they, they started to get afraid, you know, the, today they're in the wall street journal. There was a, a thing saying like, cause Davos is happening now. And like Malay talked to Davos and it's like uh, they were saying, uh, oh, they're a rightward shift at Davos, <laughs> you know, because like and I really think that that's all Bud Light. I think that there was like that's when they started to be like, oh, shit. OK, that was we went a little too far. I mean, I still think they're going to keep doing their bullshit agenda, but that was like the first time they really got their hands bit in like a serious way. It's the first time in a long time, maybe since like the Freedom Fries era that I can remember where and that's a terrible example because like that wasn't anything good for us. But like there was genuine and organic social mockery of Bud Light. Like in everyday yeah. life, you, like, you would hear people, guys joking about, give this man a Bud Light, you know, and it was like, nah, I don't drink Bud Light. This is not something that our side ever accomplishes normally and it just it, it blew up into the mainstream and they couldn't stop it 
And, well, and I think it was that- because it was a, you know, it's a funnel thing. So in marketing, we have this, the, the funnel. So the funnel is the steps that it takes to purchase a product, right? Mm-hmm. So you as a consumer are being constantly conditioned along this funnel. And the funnel begins with awareness and it used to end with conversion, right? So conversion is the act of purchase. Now it ends with something else because now we're in the social media age. So you want people to be your advocates. So now it ends with like advocacy. But the thing about a mega capitalist system is that the moment of conversion is an extremely sensitively manipulated thing, right? So it's like when you're, when you, when the average consumer, this, this action happens a million times over every, every day. They're standing in the grocery store and they're looking at three products that are basically identical to each other. You got Miller, but you have Miller Lite, Bud Light and Coors Light all next to each other, right? Mm -hmm. The way that it was working until that moment was that Bud Light was, the decision to buy Bud Light was made more than the decision to buy the other two beers. By frat boys, by construction workers, by Mexicans, you know, sorry, what? Frog commercials, right? The the Budweiser frogs, right? Yeah, the frog, right? Because they did a great job making it so that Bud Light, everybody had a good feeling about Bud Light, right? They taste the same. Nobody gives a shit what's in them. No, you know, nobody cares about anything about it besides just this like perception they have of this brand. And that fucking thing they did made it so that that purchase decision in the mind of the very, very normal person in that moment, they thought twice about buying that Bud Light, you know, and that's what happened. And so it was like the worst marketing campaign of all time because it (laughs) it, it like influenced that decision that is like impossible to influence. You know, it takes, it takes decades to build up, you know, brand equity in that way. And it was all destroyed by one stupid woman. (laughs) It's amazing. (laughs) Uh, this is a very funny thing because I, when I go, like when I go to, like I go to Walmart or whatever, and I'm in the shampoo aisle, and I need to buy shampoo, and there's just like a wall of shampoos there, and I don't care about any of them. I, I, I my thought is, is at the moment, I hate this. I wish there was one bottle of shampoo that it just said shampoo on it, yeah, so I could right. buy that. Yeah. And like, uh, I, I. Is that a normal person reaction? Like you have to condition that out of people through this, this funnel? That's a normal male reaction. So so male consumers are mostly like that, right? Like I'm not like that, but I'm, I, I like love getting high. I don't do the same. I don't really smoke weed anymore, but I just, (laughs) I'm a brand guy. So I love being at the grocery store and seeing the different colors and shit. Like I could be there for hours just because I love looking at it. Um, Most recently I have a whole thing about, so have you heard of this? Uh, you probably, I, I bet it's where, even where you are, you go to Whole Foods, you go to the vinegar aisle. In the vinegar aisle, there's this sort of, the cheapest vinegar at Whole Foods is this very specific brand that all the vinegars will be this one brand, right? On the, at the very top of the shelf. So the cheapest, the, you know, the, they put the cheap stuff up top. So the cheapest at the top will be this one brand that has this really generic logo it's kind of like cursive writing Mm -hmm. and you don't really think twice about it you're just like i need red wine vinegar i go for the cheapest thing right yeah i've been buying this shit for years (laughs) like like five years i've been buying this shit 
I like I get the sherry vinegar to make like salad dressing. One day, for whatever reason, I looked a little bit closer on this bottle and it says Stonewall Kitchen at the bottom of it. Yes, it's Stonewall Kitchen is a fucking gay rights organization I've been buying my vinegar from for five years <laughs> without knowing. Did you that post I was about funding. this on Twitter? Because I remembered, I remember yeah. this exact anecdote. Did you post? I guess, yeah, I posted about this it? on Twitter once I realized. Once I, I realized it. That's up, man. That's hilarious. It's like uh, I was Bog Beef made fun of me years ago because like I went to Walmart and they had these paper towels that were in just in a it was just a plastic wrap paper towel and it had like a black bar across it and it, and it just said in block letters paper towel. And like yeah. I started, that was my brand loyalty. I just started buying that every time because that would be my dream thing. But you know, like yeah. you said, men are like that. But we're like what twenty percent of purchases or something yeah, like right. that, right? It's mostly women. So women are really the ones that you need to like influence in some way. Yeah. That's, yeah I, that's I had, I remember having a conversation with somebody who's very smart and knew about these things back when they did the rate the you know, the razor ad, the Gillette, like the guys yeah. don't be a bad, bad white man. And I, I asked this person, it's like, why would you do that? This is a, this is for men's razors. And the person said, because they don't care about male purchasing. Like they're, they're marketing to the women who are going to be buying their husbands or boyfriends or whatever razors and stuff. Like that's, it, it, it was such like, so to the point where even the product explicitly for men is being marketed to women because they just buy so much more stuff than we do. That's incredible. Yeah, yeah. no. And right. And it's like, but men, <clears throat> men are like creatures of habit. Right. So it really, yeah, it takes a lot to knock them off of a certain behavior, but nothing's going to knock them off more than calling it gay. <laughs> you know, so as soon as something's fucking gay, we're like, no, 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 no. We do not want that shit. Uh, yeah. Um, anyway. All right, dude. Uh, thank you so much for, for doing this. I gotta, I gotta run and, and pick up my daughter, but, um, yeah, it was great chatting. Everybody already knows who you are, you know, good old boys, uh, of course, co-host of bog beef who's been on here so yeah thanks for joining man yeah thanks for having me yeah that was a lot of fun peace i appreciate it